0: Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. This is Arlie by phone, and I'm absolutely thrilled to be having a conversation with Larry about a fantastic new book, Empire of Resentment, Populism's Toxic Embrace of Nationalism. I think it couldn't be more timely. I guess I'd love to start out with asking uh, you, Larry, um, how it is you happen to get interested in uh, the topic of your book? Well, it's a great question.
1: <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> uh, it's autobiographical, I suppose. Um, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, um, I think my work has been generally, if it has one perspective, one goal, it's to make uh, understandable to people outside the world of conservatism and of right-wing organizations to, mm. make, to make what they say among themselves comprehensible. You know, right. it's often kind of mysterious to people. Uh, years ago, a few years ago, I taught a course in Berkeley. Um, it was mostly to um, older people uh, and and it was on the tea party and halfway mm. halfway through in the first intermission, six different people came up to me and they said, "How can they believe all this stuff?" <laughs> yeah, and I said,
0: goodness. and I said,
1: that's yeah. what the course is about." Oh, yeah. And Wonderful. that's been yeah. that's been the thrust of my work from from way mm. back when when I first started studying, fascism and Italy on through to today and it is the thrust I think of the work we do at the Berkeley Center for right-wing right. studies
0: right wonderful and um, in a way uh, you have a bunch of different kind of we could call them worlds of truth that you're taking the reader into right Um And the first one would be uh, the Tea Party. In other words, uh, part of your argument here is that the Tea Party was kind of uh, swallowed up, uh, you know, by Trump. And then the Republican Party swallowed up by Trump. But you have to first get us to understand why it makes any sense to be a member of the Tea Party. How would you, just starting there, take us into what feels like the truth for them.
1: Well, the Tea Party starts almost exactly one month after the inauguration of Barack Obama in 2009. Mm -hmm. Um, Prior to that, the kinds of things that the the Tea Party stood for existed in, in, you know, relatively more marginal parts of, of, of the right in America. But mm-hmm. two things happened in the fall of two thousand and nine. One was the election of Barack Obama, and the second was the financial crisis, what came to be called the Great Recession. And the mm-hmm. two of those things together created a kind of, to use the current cliche, perfect storm, mm-hmm. and such that such that um, right wing populists who had been the voting base of the Republican Party, the people who voted almost entirely on the basis of the so, so-called social issues, um, mm-hmm. those people with the election of Obama, who, if you remember back then, it didn't turn out that way, really, except for Obamacare, yep. there was a sense that Obama was going to be, the word was transformative, and people mm-hmm. talked about a second New Deal, and in the face of that, uh, and in the face of the of the recession, uh, what what popul- right wing populism did was they adopted extreme right uh, uh, free market ideology, the kind of right. ideology so, we associate. So we have with kind of,
0: we have yeah. three things. First, they start as social issues. People right right. So that's guns, that's um, uh, right to life, uh, those yes. kinds of religion. Okay. And then we have uh, Barack Obama, right? And yes. He's black. This is new. Uh, you know, is he American? Song. Right. And then we have um, a financial crisis, which he did not cause. He, he came no. in as someone no. Rescue, right? But those two things became confused. So um, so we're talking about morphing. And yes. I'm getting this picture of politics as having, uh, as being not solid and concrete, like but kind of liquid almost. Exactly. It's like um, silver, it, it's shiftable. Is that it's, your model of politics? How does it really It's, work my,
1: model it? Of, it's my model of populism. Mm-hmm. Populism adopts ideologies. In two thousand and eight, they they uh, adopted the ideology of the Koch brothers. Let's just call it that for for shorthand. So which now we have was, the fourth
0: thing: oil. Right. Okay. Right.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, which was uh, you know Republican anti. Welfare state orthodoxy, but to an extreme extent, not merely stopping the, 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 the spread, say, of, of Medicare and, and Social Security, but going back and wanting to wipe it out. Um, mm-hmm. That's kind of the, the free market extremism or free market fundamentalism that, that mm-hmm. it represented. But they held on to that ideology for a while. The premise of my book, or one of the premises of my book, is that right wing populism uh, in the form of the Tea Party, uh, when faced in 2015 and 2016 with Donald Trump, they morphed ideologically. They migrated from free market fundamentalism to, to America first. Nationalism—that you know, was,
0: yeah, yeah. It's fascinating. That was, what, fascinating. Won,
1: that was yeah. what won the presidency for Donald Trump. It won first the Republican nomination because it was winning over the the uh, largest electoral base of the Republican Party, and then it was the basis of his electoral victory. That migration, so, ideological migration.
0: So how does this? Ideological migration, a sense of liquidity, it quickly shifts. Uh, go, uh, how? That's mysterious. And I'll give you a moment from my own field work that illustrates your point. Um, when I first went down in 2011 to um, a center for Tea Party uh, feeling in uh, the South, in Louisiana, and around Lake Charles. It's recently been devastated. It's an oil and petrochemical center. And sat down with some members of the Tea Party. Um, uh, One woman was a teacher, and she said, oh, the debt, the national debt, it's terrible. In my fourth grade class in a public school, I have a big debt clock on the uh, on the classroom wall, and it goes tick 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 up up up. To go the numbers. That's how the the rise in the national debt. And why aren't we um, capping this? All these welfare programs and stop uh, spending more money than we have. So, and all of my initial interviews in 2011 and 12, exactly. 13 uh, were your Tea Party people, and it was all debt, debt, debt. After the election I went back and I didn't hear a, word, a word about yes. the national debt. How um, how could that there's a mystery here? How well could, the, the, was to it not explain, real? Did they really not care? No, they I think they really care, but the
1: it's not the heart of 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 populist politics. Ideology mm. that ideology is not the heart the heart is resentment it's anger it's resent resentment is anger expressed toward people who you perceive as above you or in a, a, a class above you and so there is this abiding anger this abiding resentment toward above all you know liberal america blue america the democratic party hollywood University professors, that sort of thing, um, and that's what remains constant. The I use the phrase in the in the in the book that ideology is held. Things like free market um, uh, fundamentalism is held epidermically. That is to say, it's only skin deep. It doesn't. It doesn't have the hold. The hold is about um, the resentment. And so what happens, what you've described in 2011, 2012, before that in the Tea Party, the national focus was on Obamacare. And it was, uh, you know, the conviction of, of the Tea Party that Obamacare meant that their own health insurance and their own economic security was going to be taken away because there's no other way to expand a benefit other than taking it away as though uh, benefits were zero-sum quantities. But thereafter, the 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 Tea Party moved on to the quote-unquote debt crises of 2011 and 2013. Right.
0: Right. and which, now they are 100% behind a guy who's raised okay. the national debt to uh highest right. it's ever been right uh, so we well get on this for
1: well before the 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 current uh economic crisis owing to uh COVID. the coronavirus the right. the there the any conviction around the debt with respect to uh, uh Donald Trump's presidency had super right.
0: disappeared. Right. So, um, on this question of uh, how they could so quickly drop a uh, top concern, I'm getting a picture from what you say that they have um, a series of issues they care about, um, and there's a rough priority. You know, you could say um, free market policies is first and you know, guns is second but they can loosely move something from the bottom up to the top of their list it's, uh, it's uh, yeah, okay now, looking at the moment we're in, we have 10 weeks to go before uh, an election and the topic of empire of resentment couldn't be more important and um, there's a recent uh, survey that found that two-thirds of uh, members of both parties feared that we're entering into a civil war with the election yes. coming up. So uh, this is honestly relevant um, uh, to us all today. And in the, in, the, in the back of your mind as you were writing this was – the possibility uh, that uh, we have to uh, entertain seriously, um, that a system known as fascism could actually uh, be uh, closer at hand than any of us want. And I'm wondering if you, if you could tell us what, what your definition of fascism is and what exactly the hallmarks of it are. What's necessary or sufficient conditions? how close are we or far away from it are we today
1: well let's let's divide fascism into two categories: one is fascism as a political movement, and the other is fascism as uh as, as something that's already in power uh, donald trump in in his campaign in twenty fifteen and twenty sixteen did mm-hmm. used to say. Very provocative, uh, uh, violent things in his uh, uh, campaign rallies, like you know, knock the crap out of him and things and things of that nature. Um, but what never developed it was a kind of militia which attached itself to the um, to the campaign. That's the mm-hmm. almost characteristic. Element of a uh, fascist movement is a political, an electoral party married to a um, uh, an essentially a private militia.
0: Yeah, Uh, that did not. So the first would be that did not during the campaign. So there was a heightened rhetoric uh, that was uh, divisive and could. And the rhetoric
1: had 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 the reason that uh in 2015 and 2016 people on both the left and the right were moved to begin discussing fascism was yeah. partly mm-hmm. was was owing to so much of his rhetoric was about scapegoating above mm. all uh Mexicans and yes. that's mm-hmm. that was characteristic of mm-hmm. fascist uh, rhetoric, rhetoric. So, right. so um, the idea that the idea that, uh, as uh, Trump called it, there's carnage in America. Um, he would he he. The function of the scapegoat is to say it's their fault, and right. that yeah. that was that was the it seems to me the element that brought about the fear. Of fascism, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. way yeah. back when we were when when we were first being introduced to the Donald Trump campaign,
0: right. And incidentally, you said something very important there that there's fear on both the left and the right. Yes, the right oh, is absolutely. talking about uh, the disorder in uh, Minneapolis and Portland as uh, um, you know a uh, a violent militia like. Uh, right. entity on the left well, well, and that's that it, it, it yeah so speak you know, to us the, a little about that um, you know
1: right now we are We, if we were to continue talking about the militia question we're now talking about someone in power and essentially a state militia and uh, a state militia dedicated to the politics of the leader, and that's what what has been developed. It it was, as it were, the training ground for that has been the uh, southern border, the border with Mexico. the the um, The police agencies that are at work that have been at work down there are the ones that have been summoned to. Portland and to into Washington D.C. and in Washington, they appeared with no insignia and picked people up from the streets. Um, and those those groups, those uh, call them state militias, have uh, functioned
0: alongside of private militias. So okay, that the, so state the, and private militias, yeah, different kinds of militias. Yes. Um, but a state militia so that's not the national guard, what do you mean by a state militia?
1: It, I mean by it to 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 use the uh, example um, Donald Trump has sent people who um, whose job had been enforcing the regulations the very harsh and cruel regulations at the border. those people have been sent to Places okay. like like oh. Portland, uh, uh, on the, um, in a way that is indistinguishable at the moment uh, from Donald Trump's current campaign for the for for re-election.
0: Okay. That, uh,
1: um, the 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 dominant narrative at the moment of the re-election campaign. Is that we are having fighting on the streets between good people who are keeping order, i.e., right. the militias and yeah. the right. and the bad guys, uh, the anarchists and and Antifa and that sort of thing, and right. so the use of this militia is is a, a hand in glove with the political. So we're, yeah,
0: so it's far more than rhetoric at this point. You know, a, a wonderful question has just come in uh, from Adam Hirschfelder, um, and uh, it's, what's the difference between populism and fascism? And with street brawls and vigilante actions, are we moving towards a fascism?
1: Well, Elements of fascism are beginning to present themselves. I mean, what we've had in the in, in under Donald Trump is of a piece with things that have been happening o- across the uh, you know throughout Europe, for example, in places like Hungary and Poland. You could throw in other places as well, like India and Turkey and Russia, but it, it goes by the name, often goes by the name, illiberalism. And, and um, illiberalism is about the executive uh, bringing unto itself more and more power and making political opposition all, uh, as ineffectual as
0: possible. Sort of and hogging so power from the hogging center. Power but then is, how is that different yeah. from populism? Let's say about three but terms no, I, I here. Yeah,
1: I think that, that populism is the sentiment that, that it can be engaged by illiberal um, governments. With a culture it's, of it. Yes. Illiberalism is a yeah, practice, me, is that right? Yeah, there, there, there are people who don't like to use the word populism to talk about the right um, populism in the USA has a history on the left but they are very distinct because the uh, populism of the left, the anger the resentment was typically uh, projected at financial elites what you get in the population populism of the right is anger uh, directed at cultural elites and that's, that's the kind of of uh, mentality and and strongly felt uh, emotions and anger that illiberal regimes are very successful at cultivating
0: okay illiberalism then you were saying was sort of the centralization the hogging of power by the by. Right. Uh, Okay, and so isn't that and the same thing as fascism? No. How are those no. two different? Just together. Um, you know, like
1: illiberal straight. regimes. Illiberal regimes are like um, salami tactics that that you know take get rid of of norms and traditions and conventions of of democratic uh, uh, you know politics one by one by one. But there are uh, Rubicons <laughs> to cross mm-hmm. to get from mm-hmm. illiberalism to
0: fascism. Okay, and, and, I see and, it's a lesser version of the thing. Yeah,
1: well, okay. it's, it's not. It's it's more than it's. It's not the a difference of degree. There really are differences of qualitative differences. There are leaps. So it isn't just salami, that,
0: if, if more or less. No, no, just, no I meant
1: salami within the context of illiberalism itself. Right. The, okay. the the gap from illiberalism to fascism, I think, is a leap. And mm-hmm. it, 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 one way you can look at it is illiberal regimes still um, derive their legitimacy from elections. Um, mm-hmm. So there are still elections in Hungary. There are still elections in in Russia. The classic mm-hmm. fascist regimes um, did not believe in elections, and and they derived their legitimacy from the um, the mystical powers, the almost mystical powers of the mm-hmm. leader. The leader was someone who had extraordinary insight and, and almost. Pro- providential insight into mm-hmm. what the nation needs so right, right. legitimacy rested on the the fuhrer or the Duce, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. that one that if you want to say cro- a, uh, a rubicon to cross from from illiberalism to fascism that one we've seen a little bit of in this country in the last several weeks mm-hmm. if you look at Republican National Convention, where the, what was the platform? The platform is what he said, you know, is, is, was, was the leader. So that's an Mm -hmm. element that's, that's really significant in my view that, that the party, the Republican party has seated uh, its Politics, its ideology, right. whatever it is that it stands for, to the uh, uh, the all-seeing leader, to the person right. who who has called himself the chosen one.
0: Right. Now, <clears throat> we've often said, "Well, look, America is different. It's exceptional, yeah. right? American yeah. exceptionalism, and that we're not like Hungary. We're not like Russia. We're not like Italy. How much is that true? How how many um, uh, uh, counter pressures against fascism would you say are in, it, it reassuringly embedded in American culture and
1: Well, I mean, if you take a place like Hungary, it it uh, it the democratic system emerged around 1990. It's maybe mm-hmm. 30 years old. The the system in the USA is 250 years old or so. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the institutional structure is much more robust here. It's not mm-hmm. eternal. It's not permanent. It's not something that that can't be eroded. But it is yeah. it is a much steeper climb for illiberalism. Yeah. You would not get in Viktor Orban's Hungary. You would not right. get PBS or 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 Stephen Colbert on television. You know, those the institutional um, and and civil society uh, uh, resistance to um, the illiberalism of Donald Trump's government is is more robust here and will take a great deal more uh, battering to go away than in other places.
0: Right. Um, Now, there's another uh, question that's come up, uh, again, from uh, Adam Hirschfelder that's really interesting. He says that uh, – this is changing uh, our focus a little – a recent poll showed that a majority of Republicans are okay with a high number of deaths from COVID-19. Is this a right wing populism of a sort of Darwinian attitude or do you think it is part of, uh, well, we're in a war and our great leader is telling us uh, uh, to be brave, uh, you know, fitting in with yeah. a sort of uh, that? Or why Why is there a difference between what Republicans and Democrats think about um Death from COVID. Well, let let me let me go back to the Tea Party
1: for a second. One of the elements that was very strong in the Tea Party was their conviction that um, uh, about the Constitution, and that they would they they would tell people there was no. It was a movement that would hand out the Constitution and say we have a uniquely powerful understanding of the Constitution, and part of that. Was that ordinary people um, mm-hmm. could interpret the Constitution? It wasn't simply the elites, like judges and lawyers, who who mm-hmm. could talk about the Constitution. It, mm-hmm. in, in scholars, uh, legal scholars called that uh, populist um, originalism. Originalism being the judicial philosophy of the likes of mm-hmm. of uh, Antonin Scalia, but but pop, pop popular or originalism that that ordinary people could do it
0: mm-hmm. in
1: in the emergence of the anti-lockdown uh, demonstrations, which many people observed and I think it was accurate felt a great deal like the emergence of the Tea Party in yeah. two thousand and, and, and nine that this kind of anti-elite um, conviction that they don't know better than we do mm-hmm. morphed, mm-hmm. transformed itself to um, the question of public health. I right. think that what you could say is that populist uh, originalism morphed into populist epidemiology.
0: Yeah. And... And,
1: mm-hmm. yeah, and uh the convictions around populist epidemiology are are have proven remarkably stable now the great outbursts of of uh of covid disease were in the cities, and so the um, at first, that is not relatively, now. right yeah. and so what's striking thus far is now that it has moved from blue america to red america that right. the convictions of populist epidemiology have still held in the face yeah. of of death in red america and yeah. uh, it, it's it's an interesting thing i don't even know even whether... though
0: there yeah and actually um you know uh, Many of the people that I came to know and wrote about in Strangers on yeah. Their Own Land have gotten COVID. And they've gone uh-huh. to church meetings because they didn't believe it was real. Right. Those experts were saying, and maybe we should just take a little Clorox. I mean, they no one well, took it that far. But, um, yeah, there was a disbelief. So populism has to do with kind of what you... Um, the, the source of authority for what source of authority, is true. Yes, yes yeah.
1: and, and true. the conviction, you know, the, the many years conviction that liberal elites are in it for the money, are basically um, people who think they know better than we do and want to tell us how to live. That yeah. has managed to carry over to an issue which um, includes questions of mortality. It's yeah. it is uh, I think a statement of how profoundly held the uh, this resentment and anger um, you know has has lodged itself in yeah. uh, right wing America.
0: Yeah, that's amazing, isn't it? Um, yes. Yeah, because they are now really suffering uh, from yes. this.
1: Well, um, as you pointed
0: out in, and your it's book, almost, as yeah. in, in your book,
1: they were suffering, the people you, you interviewed and people you got to know had generations already of, of uh, environmental of ill health, cancers yeah. and things like that, from um, in, environmental degradation at an extraordinary level at the hands yeah. of the oil and gas industry, and yet they held firm. To, right. um, to, the um, conviction that the liberal world is not a solution for them is not no. something that they could buy into. Uh, so why, the, the why
0: is that? Do you think why uh, why has this happened and why now? Well,
1: um, the the. the these are views that have been um, uh, out there in marginal, uh, you know, uh, constituencies. They haven't been until Donald Trump national issues since oh the nineteen twenties and nineteen thirties when the KKK, for example, was a powerful national force. Mm-hmm. But a couple of things happened that brought it to the level uh, where uh, it could develop a national footprint and, in fact, become a kind of kingmaker inside the Republican Party as the Tea Party was and now as the Trump movement is. And the first one of those was the economic crisis of um, of 2008, um, which... which put the the wolf at the door in terms of economic insecurity. And that was followed by uh, the conviction that um, starting in around 2015, that migrants and immigrants were the cause of um, of American distress. And so... Those two elements: first, the the Great Recession, and then um, the um, the rise of the of the quote unquote immigrant crisis or the crisis on the southern border. Those two things, and interestingly, those two things very much track with the rise of illiberal regimes in Europe. Uh, you had you had. Uh, you know, Again, these were points of view that existed, um, had never come to power, but then you got the, the Great Recession, and then you got the European um, immigration crisis from the Middle East, above all, the Middle East and Africa in about 2015, and suddenly Trump-like parties throughout Europe. Became mm. national actors in Italy. They became part of the ruling coalition. Um, mm. You know, you, you could you could argue Boris Johnson in Britain is is uh, uh, a member of this of this category yeah. of, of yeah. Uh, political leader. So though there there were these external events, and then there's the larger, you know, structural question of. Um, both inequality and deindustrialization, that that such that um, uh, working class people, class. yeah, yeah mm-hmm. uh, you know that that the the gap in the 1970s. There were several theorists of of fascism who argued that the 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 best kind of seedbed or or, 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 or ground, the most fertile ground for the rise of fascism. Were countries which had great differences in uh, in where the economic development existed. Um, oh. That is to say, you have things like in Italy, you had in the countryside uh, a a system of of land tenure which was unchanged since essentially since the Middle Ages, with 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 uh, you know. Huge landowners and serfs and things like that, and in Milano and Torino, you had advanced automobile and and aircraft industries. So it's as though as though uh, Italy had had economically was countries two countries at completely different levels of economic development, and yeah. a, something similar obtained in Germany, uh, uh, and and in. In the West and in the USA, the 30-year the slow roll of deindustrialization has produced mm-hmm. coasts where people are involved in uh, finance and, and information technology and an interior where uh, and uh, uh, people have been displaced from the kinds of Jobs that oh. uh, that seem to justify the the American dream. So um, this is an echo. Uh, uh, so,
0: yeah. Yeah.
1: So that kind of uh, you know it's it's almost as though instead of you know there being development into two different stages, it's as though here we have had one side which has developed into the post-industrial economy right. of finance and, exactly. and and high tech and the other has not only uh, not found the place in that the bottom has been pulled out of the economy exactly. that they're in so you have That's right. you have what these 1970s theorists called a fascistogenic situation. Yeah. That is yeah. to say um, a a,
0: uh, a a fertile
1: ground for yeah. this kind yeah. of thing to take hold.
0: So uh, we've got this, uh, this big division and uh, the top is uh, modernizing and getting richer and the bottom is not only um, uh, staying put, but uh, it, but going backwards, and that's the fa- fascistic, Yeah, good. Um, very helpful. Now, I want to ask you, um, if you were, just because the election is coming up, um, 10, nine weeks, if you could sit down with Joe Biden right now, and uh, you've got a, a period of time ahead of you What could he do? What would you like to see him do that um, could make a difference?
1: Well, strategically, um, what he's got to do, the first and most important thing he's got to do is to keep the Blue Coalition together and get them to the polls. Um, What we're faced with, I would tell Joe Biden, is we can have 2016 or we can have 2018. In 2016, Blue America kind of had this inkling that that Donald Trump was not going to be, was kind of unfit for the presidency. But um, the assumption that Hillary would win, Hillary Clinton would win, um, led to some indifference about actually getting out. In 2018, on the contrary, two years of of Donald Trump's presidency had created a, a, a feeling in blue America that um, led to a blue wave. Many, many more people came out and voted. 2020 mm-hmm. should should be 2018 on steroids. Two more okay, years how would he of do
0: that? Uh, what he needs place? to
1: do, what he needs yeah. to do is is deliver a message to Blue America that you were right in twenty sixteen, you, you you know it, your okay. it, your indication your your gut feeling that this guy was unfit to be president has proven true. You came out in in twenty eighteen. For that, and you need to come out in twenty twenty, and and uh, come
0: out. Th- why? What should be the reason that? Uh, what would be his call? You know, <laughs> to get um, people out.
1: Well, th- there's 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 two calls, but they're both, it seems to me, um, about Donald Trump one is that um he he has proven unfit on so many levels that um uh, the the only way to return to uh normalcy to use the cliche is by coming out in massive numbers um you know so what what well, biden what about- is offering yeah. Is 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 a return to normalcy, but it also is um, you know in terms of policy, uh, he 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 is talking about um, you know his um, you know version of something like the Green New Deal. So it, it, in 2018, questions of of uh, health care. Were, were extraordinarily important. Uh, well, what and- should he
0: say, for example, um, uh, in the Republican National Convention just a few days ago, he was saying uh, to uh, Americans, that is, Trump was saying, oh, your vote will decide, this is a quote, whether we protect law-abiding Americans or whether we give free reign to violent anarchists, agitators, and criminals. So uh it- Trump is blaming disorder on Joe Biden, although Trump is president and Joe Biden is not. What should he, shouldn't he say something about that? Wait a minute. Why are you pinning this on me? (laughs)
1: Um, Right. Um, I think he might say something like, um, we as Americans know the real difference between, um, a strong leader and somebody who simply has a big mouth. Donald Trump has not come through on almost anything he promised. And and the, one of the reasons for that is that he has proven incompetent and the incompetence has become uh, tragic with uh, the coming of the coronavirus.
0: So should he say anything um, about himself rather than just being...
1: I think that what, 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 what is really important for him himself is to take on something like the character of what used to be called, among Democrats, the happy warrior. Uh, I think he has to um, embody some hope for optimism he has to be an optimistic beacon he has mm-hmm. to say this this is going to pass we have we have a bright future here's how we get there and i think he has to not ever let donald trump get under his skin and he has to he has to convey um you know there is there there is sunshine coming
0: but Okay, um, with many cities uh, being having um, really um, ground warfare and yes. looting and yes. fires uh, and shootings, um, what should Joe Biden say about law and order?
1: Um, you know, what he's chosen to say is um that protests are good but um any kind of violence is a bad thing mm-hmm. um what what he needs to do is uh uh parry the suggestion from the uh narrative of the of the Trump campaign that that this is uh provoked by um, the terrorists of the left you know the the antifa has been has been designated in this country a um a domestic terrorist group there is no uh, group on the right these are the people who show up with um with automatic weapons um there's no uh group on the right which has been uh characterized as uh, officially as a domestic terrorist group. Mm -hmm. Uh, He needs to talk explicitly about the nature of domestic terrorism and where it's actually coming from.
0: Right. Good. Okay. So that, in a way, he has to speak to people's desire not to have looting, not to have fires, right, and not to take blame for those things. Right. He could. That's, uh, so yeah, he to, could to say, acknowledge no, law and order, too, but laws, yeah. fair laws, uh, laws that uh, make sense, uh, laws that are um, equitably applied and we're for order, but like a, a good order. Um, I mean, do you think there should be some um, claiming of that language? Uh, because it's, I it's, guess here's, it, here's I am I, also problem. mindful that the way that this is a common way in which tyrants rise, right. including Hitler. So y- that in need... fact Hitler was the law and order answer to yes. left wing disorder. Yes. And so we need to look at that history, right? Um, um, you, you couldn't be more
1: right about that, and and the alt right, for example is is self-conscious about that the alt right people the people who actually put together the demonstrations in in Charlottesville in 2017 their their goal was to create a unified right wing militia in this country and they required the 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 belief that there was something called antifa or anarchists, and that they would fight it out on the streets, um, right. precisely using the model of Weimar Germany—that is to say, the period bef- before uh, Hitler seized seized power. Um, so the 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 real issue is how do you say this? How do you uh, address this without uh, accepting? The and and, and yeah. thereby intensifying the Trump narrative of right. what the the twenty the twenty twenty election campaign wow. is about. How, wrong how, wrong. Do you, how do you how do you, how do you engage the question without okay. without saying um, you know um, there's these two sides and we have to choose between who's good and who's bad. That's Trump right. and That's the Republicans right. have made their choice in that regard, um, yeah. but you know you need to find a way to to address the question of 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 violence on the streets of Portland, which Absolutely. which it which has ignore. a different narrative.
0: Right. Good and strengthen the right narrative. Well, look, our time uh, is uh, run out, um, and I want to thank you so much, uh, Larry thank Rosenthal, you. Chair of the Berkeley Center for Right-Wing Studies and author of Empire of Resentment, Populism's Toxic Embrace of Nationalism. So, um Uh, I hope our listeners will go out and pick up a copy of The Empire of Resentment at a local independent bookstore. And uh, we also want to express our appreciation of all our viewers uh, joining us online. I'm Arlie Hochschild, and this concludes our virtual Commonwealth Club program. Stay safe and goodbye.